I am Richard Paulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 6th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the city where today's show is taking place, which is the capital of Scotland, Edinburgh! We are performing as a show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, which is the world's largest arts festival. Our venue is the historic Beehive Inn in the Grass Market, located below the rock on which Edinburgh Castle stands, which is the hub for the Scottish Comedy Festival and which seeks to promote some of the finest Scottish-based comedians at the Edinburgh Fringe and is now in its eighth year. One of today's panel fits into that category, being local, but in the spirit of the Edinburgh Fringe we have an international panel today including seasoned comics with their own shows to promote, so let me introduce them to you. We have Matt Jewell. Nakima, Dylan Dodds, and Louise Lee. So our first guest this afternoon is Matt Jewell. Jewell was a panellist in our show in Glasgow back in March. He is a stand-up comedian who moved to Edinburgh about two years ago and described himself as an observational comic who is cheerfully cynical and conversational. He was a finalist in the Hilarity Bites New Act of the Year 2018 and Stand Up for Cider 2017. Over to you, Matt. All right, okay, so I thought I would cheer us all up by, uh, uh, on this day in uh, 1945, uh, I believe, uh, the bomb was dropped for Hiroshima. That's what it's a beautiful uh, moment in history. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's personal because, like, I, I, do you know what? I genuinely do think about it. I remember when I was a kid, uh, they played like an air raid siren in, in assembly. I just remember the blood chill that went through my bone. And I, and I generally hear that sound whenever any noise goes up or down. Do you know what I mean? Like when, when the, you wake up hungover and the, uh, the, the trash is being taken, the noise that goes, and you're like, oh, that's it. I generally think the world's going to end always. Do you know what I mean? Like, whenever I hear a loud noise or something, I'm like, that's it, that's it, we're done, let's get the tin food out, we need it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just like, oh no, the washing machine's just kicked into spin. You know, we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite—it's it's, it's, it's a terrifying thing, but it's a fascinating story. I, I was really, uh, really, because it's one of those things that I just thought I know about that. I mean, you read it and you go, "Oh, I didn't know any of that." It's really interesting, and we all—we all know that I'm sure that the, um, the plane that flew up was called the Enola Gay, uh, which uh, many of you might know that um, that's named after the pilot's mother, uh, which is not. You'd be pretty pissed off, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Mum, I've named her after you. What, your daughter? No, 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 the destroyer of modern life. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fitting. <laughs> you know? uh, of course, uh, you know, the, bomb was, uh, the bomb was created by uh, Robert Oppenheimer, uh, you know, uh, who famously said, uh, I have become deaf of the destroyer of worlds. But that's, uh, you know, like all quotes, you know, it's very similar to when comedians write, uh, uh, he was funny, but it was sometimes, and they cut off the sometimes. The full quote was actually, if you do a bit of research, it was, I think can become deaf, destroyer of worlds. Can I have a raise? <laughs> I think the team have done a pretty good job. <laughs> so, you know, that's that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's fascinating. So many fascinating parts of it. One, one, one thing, um, 
It was assembled uh, on the on the fl uh, the bomb was assembled on the plane. That's really interesting. It's assembled on a plane. It gives you you know because uh, I've I've seen sort of air hostesses or stewardesses struggle you know with like with like wine. Do you know what I mean? You know, like, yeah, there must have been a moment when someone's like, whoa, <laughs> it's pretty scary. And also really interesting. Only three of the eight crew knew what was happening. Yeah, the other five, five of them actually thought it was uh, just like a routine reconnaissance mission. Uh, they must have thought they were just, the other three didn't like them. <laughs> you know what I mean, what, what, what are you doing back there? Just playing Scrabble? <laughs> Can we play? No. That's an eight for you, Jim. Uh, it's, really, it's really interesting. There's so many, uh, the Americans actually, uh, they did warn. They warned uh, the residents of, Nags of, uh, of Nagasaki and, uh, no, it was Hiroshima and also Nagasaki and three days later. They did warn them, uh, by, uh, they dropped leaflets, uh, which was a nice thing to do, but who in the history of mankind has ever taken heed of warnings? Nobody, you know, like, it's like when I was told when I was younger that life is gonna be depressing and a struggle, I just went, no, you're wrong, mum, I'm not gonna end up like you. Uh, I was wrong, I should have listened to her. Other parts of say, um, quite a lot of people, like, the, the statistics of people who died are, are pretty frightening. Uh, like, um, up to 132,000 people died. Um, in in uh, in the first drop of in Hiroshima, that's like uh, like Dundee disappearing off the map. Can can you imagine that? Let's all imagine Dundee <laughs> disappearing from the map. <laughs> For the audience at home, I'm smiling. Uh, <laughs> actually, that's not fair. Dundee's great. <laughs> They're always really good to me. Uh, where else we got? Um, uh, it was really just like, like the Japanese did. They picked up the planes on the radar, but they just they just left them because they didn't think it was a threat, which is ridiculous. Uh, we've got some planes flying. Um, are, are they friendly? Uh, no, just from the country we're at war with. <laughs> Should we do something about it? Nah. What a mistake! What a horrific mistake! Um, also, uh, also, uh, what is really interesting about is what happened after the bomb was dropped. You know, uh, there's so many weird kind of like things that happen. Uh, this, some of these aren't just jokes; they're just interesting facts. Um, due to the way that light is refracted by colours, if you wore uh, if you wore a striped um, top and you survived, or, or your remains were found, the burns matched the stripes. Uh, you know, so. Uh, so septic fans would have would have got away better than others then. Um, <laughs> um, other things, uh, the, the nearest person to ground zero who survived was 130 meters away from the blast. Uh, and he, they survived in a basement, which is pretty amazing. They must have just been really angry with their neighbors upstairs. Just like, that's just too much noise. Can we just come back down? <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a guy I, f I forget his name, I, I, I should have written down, he, he, um, he was in Hiroshima when the bomb dropped and he survived. Uh, but he was only visiting for a day, so he was really, really unlucky, he was just like, you know, uh, and, then, uh, and, then, and, then, uh, and then he returned home the next day to uh, Nagasaki. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then three days later, he must have like, heard a noise and thought, ah, I can't, you know, I'm just, I'm just PTSD, uh, no bombing, and he survived. 
And he died in 2010, aged 93 years old. But I guarantee you, he never left Nagasaki. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, uh, God, uh, Godzilla, of course, was uh, was was a, was a visual metaphor for uh, Hiroshima bomb, and a big impact on uh, Japanese culture. Um, incidentally, incidentally, uh, uh, King Kong was a uh, was a metaphor for the NHS. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. Uh, <laughs> Just is, um, and of course, uh, you know, it, it eventually led to the uh, the Japanese uh, kind of surrendering. Um, uh, actually, a lot of people think uh, a lot of historians are starting to revise uh, their view of, of did the Japanese surrender just because of the atomic bombs. A lot of people think it was actually that the Soviet Union declared war on Japan as well, uh, and actually it just led to them uh, agreeing to surrender in terms a bit quicker than they would have liked to, so that they, they, they gave a lot more away than they would have liked. They were going to hold out for a bit more until the Soviet Union. Um, I, I think the atomic bombs probably had part of it, though. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, think, I, think, I think more of the story is uh, the Japanese did pretty well out of it in terms. <laughs> like, have you been to Japan? It's great. You know I mean? <laughs> Whoever did that deal was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I tell you what, we won't bomb or attack anybody but we will do, can we just be left alone to become the most technologically advanced part of the country, of the world? Yes, we can. So, so that's, kind of, that's kind of it, really. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and uh, yeah, it's, it's quite scary. In the, um, but uh, Robert Arcona, he actually said, uh, just to finish this, he said, um, he's, he actually said something along the lines of, now I've created the atomic bomb, we are now, we have reached a point where war is unendurable. Uh, and hopefully that means we are now entering a new country. Um, as a metaphor, of course, in terms of like now we we won't use war as a, an option. And uh, I think it's fitting that for the man who caused so many deaths, how utterly wrong he was about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's me. That's Hiroshima, and uh, yeah, just to cheer us up. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Matt. So it's on this day in 1637, the English playwright and poet Ben Jonson died. He had a lasting impact upon English poetry and stage comedy and popularised the comedy of humours. He explained this so. Some one peculiar quality doth so possess a man, that it doth draw all his effects, his spirits and his powers in their confluxions, all to run one way. Before joining the theatrical company of Philip Henslow in London as an actor and playwright, he worked as a bricklayer and served with the army in Flanders. In 1597, he was imprisoned for his involvement in a satire entitled The Isle of Dogs, which was seen as seditious. And in 1598, he killed a fellow actor, Gabriel Spencer, in a duel, and he was tried at the Old Bailey for murder. He only escaped the gallows by pleading benefit of clergy. Now, to do this, you had to appear before the court, tonsured and wearing ecclesiastical dress, and you had to prove that you were literate by reading aloud Psalm 51. A law from 1488 had decreed that non-clergymen pleading the benefit of clergy who were unable to prove through documentation of their holy orders that they actually were clergymen were branded on the thumb, which Johnson was. During his subsequent imprisonment he converted to Roman Catholicism, only to convert back to Anglicism in 1610. Seems he was a bit of an opportunist. In 1616, the year in which Shakespeare died, Johnson was made Poet Laureate. So an interesting backstory for a Poet Laureate. In 1618, he set out for Scotland and made the journey entirely on foot. 
some of his sayings. Number one, talking and eloquence are not the same. To speak and to speak well are two things. Number two, success produces confidence. Confidence relaxes industry and negligence ruins the reputation which accuracy had raised. And number three, oh, for an engine to keep back all clocks or make the sun forget his motion. After he died 382 years ago today, he was buried in Westminster Abbey in an upright position. A plain slab marked his grave with the engraved words, oh, rare Ben Johnson. So our second guest is Nav Chima. Nav is from Los Angeles, where she lived mm. in a cloud of smog, she tells me, uh, but is now staying in an Airbnb inside a discarded takeaway box. So <laughs> things are getting better. Yeah. Uh, she has worked as a substitute teacher and directed a web series called Weird. Over to Nav, thank you. Okay, so my historical fact. Today um, was the first day that a monkey was successfully cry cryogenically frozen and brought back to life. Um, it was by a guy named Dr. Ralph something or another. <laughs> um, Emerson, Ralph Emerson. Um, and yeah, so there was a caveat. Whenever he froze animals and brought them back, um, he did this with a guinea pig before and um, the guinea pig lived, but it would eat the brains of the other guinea pigs. Um, so that means this monkey, when he was brought to this house, he probably thought like he was being adopted. Um, and then he like met this guinea pig and he was probably like, so what's the deal? You know, how, how does this house work? And the guinea pig is like, yeah, it's pretty normal. Um, we eat brains. <laughs> Um, and we play tennis, whatever else. They, the guinea pig also would eat the flesh of the other guinea pigs as well. So I'm sure that was lovely um, <laughs> for that poor monkey. Um, but yeah, the monkey had a name as well. I also don't remember it. Let's call him Dave. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, so he was brought to this house and he was frozen. Um, he probably, this wasn't in Wikipedia, but I'm guessing this is what happened. Um, I was educated in America, so it might not be accurate, but, um, so yeah, he probably woke up in the future, and in the future, everything was the same, except, um, everyone's left leg was two inches shorter, um, that was the only difference, but everything else was fine. Um, and so this monkey wandered around, this Dave guy, and um, so he talked, he met this like talking recycling container. Mm -hmm. um, that was the one other difference in the future. Um, and also, uh, like Americans were exiled as well. Um, that took care of most of the world's problems. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this recycling container asked the monkey, um, we're having this problem. Um, like people named Katie keep putting yogurt bottles inside of us um, and you can't recycle yogurt so we're like gonna try to fix this um, and so the monkey fixed that problem and came back home um, but yeah that's not what happened but the monkey did live um, according to Wikipedia um, he had a full life but um, the only thing that went wrong with him is that he would like write on the walls in his own blood and feces. 
<laughs> Which is lovely um, and a little sad. I think it would have done well at the Fringe as an act. <laughs> I would have gone, yeah, I would have gone to watch that. Um, he probably would have won all the awards. Um, but yeah, he, the scientist, um, I'm not sure if he should be lauded or not. He did mess up the animals. But he, um, he wanted to like try it out on dogs next. Um, which would have been awful, but thankfully people were against that. Um, dogs are very well connected in the government, <laughs> apparently, monkeys are not. Um, but yeah, that's that's what happened today. I hope you learned something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nat. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Uh, interestingly, our first trial prep was a guinea pig. Oh, really? Mm. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> 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 yes. <laughs> So it was the 6th of August 1809 when Alfred Lord Tennyson was born in Somersby, Lincolnshire. He was another poet laureate, as it happens, of Great Britain and Ireland, uh, but for 42 years, succeeding William Wordsworth when he died in 1850 and r right up until his own death in 1892. Now, much of his work was about grief, melancholy and loss, and he himself had a lifelong struggle with debilitating depression. His early poetry, with its medievalism and powerful visual imagery, was a major influence on the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. He coined the term airy-fairy in a poem in 1830, but its meaning was something slightly different. It was meant to be enchanting and magical. He met Queen Victoria twice, first in April 1862, and she wrote about it in her diary. She said Tennyson was very peculiar looking, tall, dark, with a fine head, long black flowing hair and a beard, oddly dressed, and no affectation about him. But on their second meeting, which is a long time later, the Queen made a point of telling Tennyson what a comfort his poem In Memoriam A.H.H. had been when her husband, Prince Albert, had died. When Thomas Edison invented early sound recording technology, he sought out Tennyson to record him reading a number of his best-loved poems, including The Charge of the Light Brigade, about the famous and brutal military disaster in the Crimean War. That contains the famous line, there's not to reason why, there's but to do and die. Rather weirdly, this phrase is now often used in the workplace by managers seeking to encourage workers to press on no matter what the task. Tennyson apparently is the ninth most quoted person in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations. Uh, so some examples uh, are th from the last line of his monologue, Ulysses, to strive, to seek, to find and not to yield which was quoted as part of the London 2012 Olympics. Another one, uh, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." So that's one for those people leaving the European Union. Uh, and that's one for today, "'A lie that is a half-truth is the darkest of all lies.'" And one which I find particularly lovely and is also well known, "'If I had a flower for every time I thought of you, "'I could walk through my garden forever.'" And he had a wonderful way with words, so I particularly like the two lines. Uh, it's, uh, I'm sure I'm going to trip over this, but let's try it. Uh, the moan of doves in immemorial elms and murmuring of innumerable bees. In Ulysses, uh, Tennyson succinctly offers his view that humans are shaped by a combination of all life's experiences. As the hero states, I am a part of all that I have met. And so on to our third guest. So this is Dylan Dodds. Dylan studied archaeology at university after failing chemistry. And he tells me that was as a result of taking too many chemicals. So 
his show is at the Edinburgh Fringe and is called Dylan Dodds and Friends, but friends are not included. Over to Dylan. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Uh, yes, I'm uh, Dylan Dodds, uh, Dodsy, the double D, uh, Dildo. Uh, <laughs> if you want, uh, so I studied archaeology. If you don't know, archaeology is the one where you, uh, they really like the, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, sex fetishes. <laughs> um, I used to like going on the digs as well. Um, are any of you historic, historical people at all? So I used to really like going on the digs. You have amazing flings on the digs. Um, I once uh, really liked this girl, and then she dumped me when we got back to the real world. Uh, she found out I uh, wore the same clothes off the dig as on the dig. <laughs> um, Archaeology, of course, has turned out to be pretty useless. Uh, basically taught me how to put up with all the hardships of being a builder without giving me the skills required to be a builder. Uh, which is, well, I'm now doing stand-up, and I'm here today to talk to you about the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire um, in 1806. I hope I've got that year right. Uh, so a brief, brief bit of backstory on the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, it was founded... Um, by um, Cassius, who was very hard of hearing, and uh, uh, Brutus, who was a cannibal, uh, which is where we get the phrase, et who, Brutus? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was actually founded by Charlemagne, um, who uh, did such a great job, uh, they had to refound the empire 200 years later. Um, but yes, uh, you might know Charlemagne from uh, Indiana Jones, of course, Sean Connery there, uh, it says, uh, quote Charlemagne, uh, saying, let my armies be, I don't know, I should probably do the accent, shouldn't I? Uh, uh, let my armies be the trees in the field and the uh, birds in the sky. And also in Indiana Jones, um, he says, I, uh, he knows that well, this woman is, the, is, a, is, a, is a Nazi. And Indiana Jones says, oh, how did you know she was a Nazi? And Sean Connery says, oh, she talks in her sleep, uh, which is you know, a joke about him having sex with her. And, uh, but I didn't, that went over my head completely as a child, uh, so I just thought that all Nazis talk in their sleep. <laughs> um, anyway, so Charlemagne uh, founded this empire. He uh, reunited the Franks, um, with the tragic exception of Anne, uh, who he couldn't find. Uh, yes, uh, this of course ultimately led to the creation of France, um, but he did do a lot of good too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fittingly, the, uh, the Holy Roman Empire was defeated um, by Napoleon, who had a short reign. Um, as it was the first uh, large empire to try and emulate the Roman Empire, um, much like Napoleon did. Uh, now, despite Napoleon's best efforts, and that of the uh, British Empire, it wasn't until the Third Reich uh, that we finally realised maybe building a pan-European empire based on mil military supremacy isn't the best idea. <laughs> um, now, Napoleon defeated the uh, last Holy Roman Empire, uh, Emperor Francis II, at the Battle of Austerlitz, and also married his daughter, um, not his own daughter, married Emperor Francis II's daughter, uh, proving once and for all that he was uh, the greatest Frenchman. <laughs> now, uh, Francis II uh, abdicated after his defeat, uh, which ended the Holy Roman Empire and marks the last time Europe would ever be controlled by a large bureaucratic organisation centred in Germany. <laughs> uh, Francis II and his line continued as uh, the uh, Emperor of Austria, uh, until the end of the First World War, um, of course, which then ultimately led on to the Nazis, um, Germany first, uh, Francis second. Now, uh, the only remaining principalities of the Holy Roman Empire are uh, Liechtenstein, uh, Ramstein, and Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, although no one actually knows the real name of the third, as Frankenstein is obviously the creator, not the principality. <laughs> cool. uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Dylan. 
After former President Theodore Roosevelt lost the US presidential nomination of the Republican Party in 1912 to the incumbent president, William Howard Taft, he decided to form a new third party called the Progressive Party, but popularly known as the Bull Moose Party. So 107 years ago today, it was meeting at the Chicago Coliseum and was taking positions on progressive and populist reforms, some of which seem just as relevant today. The platform's main theme was reversing the domination of politics by business interests, which allegedly controlled both the Republican and Democratic parties. The platform asserted, to destroy this invisible government, to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics is the first task of the statementship of the day. This was 107 years ago. The party also stood for women's suffrage, a national health service and an eight-hour working day. However, it did also urge states to adopt measures for direct democracy, including the referendum, where citizens could decide on a law by having a popular vote. Hmm. <laughs> yes. um, the Bull Moose nickname reflected the characteristics of strength and vigour which Roosevelt often used to describe himself. During the campaign he was about to make a speech in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when he was shot in the chest and he went ahead with his address saying he had a bullet in his body but it takes more than that to kill a Bull Moose. Campaigning by all candidates was suspended during the two weeks it took him to recover and doctors decided it was safer to leave the bullets in his body. So in the 1912 presidential election, Theodore Roosevelt came second to Woodrow Wilson, getting 27% of the popular vote and six states, to Wilson's 42% and 40 states. Taft gained 23% and only two states. So the splitting of the Republican vote had led to a Democrat victory, and then the Bull Moose Party itself went into rapid decline and had disappeared by 1920. Our fourth guest is Louise Lee. Louise lives in Bristol where she runs the Funny Women Time of the Month, which aims to get more women into stand-up. She was Funny Women Regional Finalist in 2017 and Stand Up for Cider finalist in both 2016 and 2018. Uh, weirdly, Matt was a finalist in 2017. She also tells me that both of her grannies live in Scotland. Um, her Edinburgh show is called Louise Lee Identifiable, which she in which, uh, where she talks and occasionally sings about being married, the indignities of middle-aged kids and keeping up appearances. Um, the Scotsman has called her imaginative and brilliant. So, over yeah, to you, Louise. Yeah, I got that wrong. Uh, it's, it's witty and imaginative. Anyway, hello. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that wrong in all my publicity, terrible. Um, anyway, uh, I'm going to do a talk um, about uh, a woman whose name I can't pronounce. So that's a great start. Uh, she's called Gertrude Edderly, I think, um, and she is the first woman to swim the channel in, on the 6th of August 1926. So in 1925, only five people had swum the channel so far, uh, all of them men, and they'd done it in an average of 20 hours, um, and they'd all done it breaststroke, like your nan. <laughs> um, Along comes Gertrude, uh, who was one of the early practitioners of American crawl, or as I call it, proper swimming. Um, she was age 20 and she already had 29 US and world records, which I think she did to make me feel inadequate. Um, she was swimming, she swam in the 1924 Olympics alongside her teammate Johnny Weissmuller, who some of you might remember uh, famously went on to star as Tarzan. Now this was the biggest failure of her career because she came home with 
only two bronzes and a team gold. Oh. <laughs> um, and Weissmuller consoled her, saying, oh, 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 you poor thing. <laughs> so after this miserable, catastrophic failure, uh, she decided she was going to become the first woman to swim the channels. channel. Guys, that's 21 miles. Okay, uh, and that's the equivalent of 1,416 lengths of your home 25 metre swimming pool, right? Um, and of course, if you're swimming in the local baths, uh, you might expect to encounter fat, hairy men performatively washing their testicles in the communal shower. Um, but in the channel, you might meet uh, dangerous currents, shoals of poisonous jellyfish and ruddy great ships. So um, I can quite see why she chose the open water. Um, she uh, decided to get a coach, a Scottish guy called Jabez Wolf. Now, I can't help thinking that being a Scottish man called very close to Jobbies <laughs> would mean you'd want to get a different name. And so he was known as the hero of 21 channel swims. The hero of 21 channel swims. Would you like to know how many times he successfully swam the channel? None. <laughs> Not one. Not one. But he was still an expert because, you know, mansplaining. Um, uh, anyway, so they, in 1925 she had her first attempt and uh, she was pulled from the water two-thirds of the way across because um, they, her team thought she was drowning. Or she did say she was just resting with her face in the water. <laughs> My husband is not drunk, he just really loves me on Friday night. Um, <laughs> so then uh, after that attempt she decided to get a new coach and on the 6th of August 1926 she greased up in Dover. And a lot of people think that swimmers wear, um, cover themselves in goose fat, but actually, uh, they, it, it, at this time certainly, they use lanolin, which, as we know, comes from sheep. Obviously, the far superior swimming creature to goose. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she swam from Dover to Calais in 14 hours 34 minutes, right? Which was two hours faster than the nearest man, right? Um, and the record now is just under seven hours so yeah um the, her record stood for 20 years and she became world famous and she was known as the queen of the waves <laughs> that of course the wave of the queen <laughs> um, and uh they did things, she had all this kind of merch and things like that. She, um, her, there was things like um, Gertrude Ederle soap and watches and, of course, cigarettes, uh, because nothing says sporting endeavours like emphysema and throat cancer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is Gertrude Ederle, and that is her channel swim on the 6th of August 1926. Thank you, Louise. Thank you. So now we come to the second part of the show. We've kind of talked about things that happened on this day in history. And the second half of the show is about the place that we're in. So for this show, it's Edinburgh. And it's, well, it would be a very, very long show if we covered all the history of Edinburgh. So we've decided to try and narrow it down a little bit. And we'll talk about the grass market, because that's, that's the place where uh, the Beehive Inn stands. Before I do that, I wanted to pick out some th a fact about Edinburgh that I thought maybe no one ever knew before. So here we go. In 2015, Alistair Paul from A&I Quality Butchers produced 36 sausages in one minute at the Royal Highland Show in Edinburgh. That's the rate of 2,000 an hour. So we're in the grass market, one of Edinburgh's main marketplaces, which dates back to 1477. Cattle and horses were sold here, and grass was the food which was given to them while they were kept in pens. 
Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, visited in the 1720s and reported on the grass market and the horse market. And as the grass market catered for the market traders and cattle drovers, so it became a place of taverns, hostelries and temporary lodgings, much as it does today. Uh, another fact, in the late 18th century, the fly coach, as it was called, to London set out from an inn at the Cowgate Head at the eastern end, and that went via Dumfries and Carlisle, joining the post coach there for London, and the whole journey took four days. Um, so much like trying to travel by diverted train and replacement bus today. <laughs> I, I've got lots of facts on the grass market, but if you've done any research panel, feel free to chip in. Otherwise, I will just keep talking. Uh, yeah, I like the story that they found uh, just outside this pub. They did some excavation a few years ago, and they found remains of Bronze Age people. And they didn't think that Edinburgh was inhabited at that time. I like to think that those 3,000-year-old remains with clutching tablets with early proto-writing saying free comedy on them. <laughs> 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 yes, perfectly possible, yes. Are, are we sure it was uh, not just like an ironic stag do, but just perish? <laughs> <laughs> So Robert Burns, he was National Bard of Scotland, he stayed at the White Hart Inn, which is a couple of doors up, during his last visit to Edinburgh in 1791. That pub was founded in 1516, making it one of the oldest, if not the oldest, public house in Edinburgh. The White Hart was where Burns bid farewell to his lover, Agnes Nancy McLehose, if that's the right pronunciation, before she left for Jamaica. Uh, Nancy was the inspiration for Burns' poem, I Fond Kiss and he sent her a copy of the manuscript after their final meeting. Uh, that's what I always do when I break up with somebody, I send them the manuscript. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, some people just break it with a text, but I think a manuscript, <laughs> manuscript is much, much more appropriate. Yeah, it's nice, yeah. yeah. It makes it's me nice. feel wanted, even it's though nice I touch. obviously don't want them. Or not wanted, in fact, yeah. Did she come back from Jamaica? Uh, I think she did come back, yes. She would spend her days, all the days there. Right, I was going to say, she's, it's not really, his, not really his lover if she's just like, uh, I like you, but I'm going to Jamaica now for a bit, you know? Yeah, you can't put your life on hold just for a man. Because <laughs> <laughs> you had to follow her own dreams. Yeah, good on her. So there you go, yes. I keep so, wanting to do the Jamaica, no, she went on her own accord, but I can't find a way to get it in. Yes. Sorry. My, uh, my landlord was Jamaican, and he used to say, um, you're not very good at accents. <laughs> Are we sure? That's my Jamaican joke there. That's all I got. <laughs> You're not very good at Jamaican jokes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I mean, again, speaking from my highly successful um, experience of women, uh, <laughs> uh, are we sure she, she, she went to Jamaica and not just, like, moved flat? <laughs> Gone to Jamaica <laughs> for a couple of years. Yeah, old days ghosting. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly right, yeah. <laughs> but it might not even have been. She might not really have been. To be fair, it just might have been how they said going to Jamaica. It's like a euphemism. How's the relationship going? Well, she's oh, going she's, to Jamaica in a couple of days. Yeah, she's yeah. gone to Jamaica. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My, my wife went to Jamaica with Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is that tied to the joke? She, she's left. Uh, where, Jamaica. No, she went of her own accord. There we go. We've done it. We, we, we've we've done it. We, we've we've as opposed, it in. As opposed to Jakarta. <laughs> no, she went on a plane. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and a joke like, in my set, which is the neighbours left for Italy, whereabouts? Genoa. 
<laughs> no, no, we hardly ever speak. Oh, That's what comedy was like before 1980. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the olden days. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember 1980. What's wrong with that? Uh, okay, so in 1803, William and Dorothy Wordsworth stayed at the White Hart Inn as well. I'm advertising the pub at the road all the time. Dorothy described the pub as not noisy and tolerably cheap. Uh, she obviously wasn't visiting on a Saturday night. Two stars. Yes. <laughs> yes. Given its history, Theresa May might appreciate a stay in the old Catalan Horse Market Street. Uh, she needed somewhere strong and stable. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, early Italian immigrants to Edinburgh made their home in the Grass Market area, and legend says that the first Italian immigrant arrived in 1882 and worked as an organ grinder. So that goes in with the theme again of probably founding out flies at the same time. <laughs> Um, so the grass market gained a reputation for Italian music and ice cream, and at one time was nicknamed Little Italy. In 1916, the grass market was one of the places targeting in a rare bombing north of the border by a German Zeppelin. Four people were injured and one died at the White Hart Inn. <laughs> so, it's a much more interesting pub than the one we're in. Yeah. Now, so. <laughs> yes, okay. That's where all the parties are at, and the bombings. <laughs> so as, as well as being famous for its hostelries, the grass market is famous being the site of public executions. From 1660 and for over a century, Covenanters in particular it seems suffered a lot at the hands of the, uh, from the gallows, so over a hundred of them executed alone in the grass market. Even a hangman himself was executed in the grass market after he was found guilty of murdering a beggar. They, um, they called that time when they were killing the, the Covenanters really imaginatively. Uh, they called it the killing time. <laughs> and I quite like the idea of someone going, oh, what age are we in? Are we in the golden age? You know, are we in the brilliant time? No, love, no, we're in, the, we're in this is the killing time. <laughs> That's what's going to happen after Brexit, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. The yeah, killing time killing. part two. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And did you know about uh, Maggie... Half hang it, Maggie. Yeah. What's her name? Dixon. Half, half hang it, Maggie, Maggie Dixon. Yeah. Do you know about half, Maggie, half hang it, Maggie Dixon, who was hung but refused to die? <laughs> like so many comedians I've seen. And, <laughs> 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 um, and uh, yeah, they got she got they put her on the bus to Muscleborough and she woke <laughs> up. Is that right? I mean, that's what, sure was, was that me? After she'd been hung, because she was hung because she had a child out of wedlock, he died, didn't yeah. she? Yeah. So after they hung her, the guy who took her off in the coffin or whatever it was stopped off at an inn for an hour, but he was there a lot longer than he planned. And when he came out, she was sitting on the edge of the car alive. Um, so she coughing away with me. So when are you going to get me a drink? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a tumble. Yeah. It'll have been a tumble, won't it? Yeah. I love a tumble. Yeah. Whenever we get to say tumble, I'm going to say tumble. <laughs> There used to be a lot of people who used to survive hanging, uh, and it was, it was a weird uh, dichotomy because obviously when they were hung, they were going to be checked if they're dead, and then we send away to be post-mortem. But obviously when they're being post-mortemized, that's the word, right? Post-mortemized. Yeah. Um, uh, that was a medical professional who was part of the Hippocratic Oath. So if they showed any signs of life, they were under obligation to revive them. But very often they were dangerous criminals. So that was, uh, yeah, so... 
Do you know, would they be sent back to be hung again if they arrived? No. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I meant, you can't, no, but you can't, you can't no, be tried Maggie, twice for the same crime, so yeah, surely exactly, they got yeah. away with it. So Maggie Dixon wasn't tried again, yeah. There was a guy who'd said that he would try and get half hung it, and he, tr he, and, and he was like, I am going to be hung in the grass market and all that, and then, and then he just went, oh, actually, no, because he was scared. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Are you sure he wasn't just like a kink? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, could have been. Could have been. Just one of those guys. He had an orange in his mouth. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> bag over his head. Yeah. I always think those people who do that, like, if you know, you've got to, you know, you know how the phrase "hope for the worst, plan for the best." Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. so just be like, you know, I'd leave a suicide note just in case I got it wrong. Because the shame. Yeah, because the last thing I want is thinking, well, <laughs> when did they die? Well, I just wanted to get off. So. <laughs> help, help yourselves to the rest of the oranges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Kleenex is probably just tears. go off of those. <laughs> <laughs> very considerate. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not very appealing. So. Uh, oh, yeah, I got you that. got it, yeah. I got it. I do slip them in. <laughs> yeah. So Maggie Dixon has a pub named after it in oh. the grass market, just up the road as well. So we're advertising all the other pubs apart from the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else about the grass market before I move on? I saw my uncle today. You saw your uncle today. <laughs> and he said, I hope this is a con in context. I was thinking about the Beehive. He said it was one of the first nice restaurants outside of sort of the, the old the new town in Edinburgh. Oh. This very room in which we sit with its incredible wallpaper. Yeah. Um, I mean, he died in 1997, so that's a fascinating insight. <laughs> well, my uncle. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, Edinburgh's a very haunted place, as you'll know. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't food poisoning, was it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, gentrification crept mm. even here. Right, yeah. interesting. So the second main topic I wanted to cover in the time I got left was is Greyfriars Kirkyard. So that's, that's just up the road from here. Uh, Greyfriars takes its name from the Franciscan friary on the site because uh, they wore grey habits. Now that was actually dissolved in 1560 and the kirkyard was founded two years later after royal sanction was granted to replace the churchyard of St Giles, which is on the Royal Mile. Now during the early days of photography, apparently as early as the 1840s, uh, the kirkyard was used by uh, David Octavius Hill and Robert Adamson as a setting for several portraits and tableau, such as the artist and the gravedigger. But obviously, Greyfriars is most famously known for Greyfriars Bobby. Now, he was a Skye Terrier dog born on 4th of May 1855 and became known for spending, allegedly, 14 years guarding the grave of his owner in the kirkyard until he himself died on 14th of January 1872. Now, Bobby's headstone can be seen at the entrance to the kirkyard, and that was placed there by the Dog Aid Society in 1981. And many visitors think, oh, that's where he, and therefore his owner, are buried. But Bobby's original grave was unmarked, and the Dog Aid Society's monument is in an unconsecrated patch of the kirkyard. So it's away from the grave of the Edinburgh police officer, John Gray, who's the supposed dog's owner. He's buried some 30 metres away from the entrance. I say supposed because it's not even known for certain who the owner actually was of the dog because there are two contradictory contemporary accounts. One points to John Gray as a night watchman, another to John Gray as a farmer. After Bobby died, the English philanthropist Lady Burdett Coote commissioned a drinking fountain to be made, the upper fountain for humans and a lower fountain for dogs. 
and it was topped with Bobby's statue. The sculptor was called William Brodie and it was erected just the year after Bobby's death in 1873. It's opposite the graveyard's gate at the junction of George IV Bridge and Candlemaker Row and you can never get along that portion of the street because there's always hordes of tourists trying to take photos of the statue. It's actually Edinburgh's smallest listed building, that statue. Now the drinking fountain's water supply was cut off along with all of Edinburgh's drinking fountains around 1975 due to health scares. It was also hit by a car in 1984 and had to be restored. And the accuracy of the stories of uh, Greyfriars Bobby has been challenged many times. Yeah, most recently by a very drunk guy by my venue just spitting on the statue and, yeah. saying, and saying, ah, it's not even true. <laughs> going off to get another point, yeah. It's a bit extreme. It's, it's, just, it's just like that's that debate sorted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I'm an authoritative voice on the subject. <laughs> he just sorted out Brexit and scored <laughs> 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 Right, that's two done, three. <laughs> yeah, the thing that I tell you about Greyfriars Bobby as well is that uh, the spot at which the dog uh, waited after his master died was right next to a butcher's. So. <laughs> <laughs> what a coincidence. coincidence. Yeah. Did they know that sausage maker? No, that came later. Mm. Allegedly, I've not checked this out, I went around the kirkyard today and I forgot to check actually, but allegedly there is a sign near to the dog's headstone which says no dogs allowed. <laughs> which is a nice little touch, isn't it? So. I've, <laughs> I've got a couple of things on the cemetery as well. You said to look up other people buried at the cemetery. Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, so I, look, I was looking for all the names. Uh, there was a lot of poet laureates, which you were talking about earlier, a lot of poet laureates. Um, there was a William Smelly, uh, not surprised after he's decomposed a bit. <laughs> yes. uh, there was a, a William Wallace, who of course was the famous mathematician, William Wallace, <laughs> and not the, uh, not the Mel Gibson one. He'd yeah. struggle to open a bank account, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? William Wallace. Get out of here. <laughs> no, no. And uh, Hugh Cunningham of Bonington, uh, which I just like saying. Um, and there was also uh, a uh, oh, there was there was a Campbell and a Blair and a Brown. Uh, just in case anyone was wondering where the last vestiges of New Labour are buried. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also uh, Thomas Riddle, who uh, is supposedly the uh, where J.K. Rowling got the, the real name of, of Voldemort uh, from, um, although in that case it's not so much he who, he who must not be named as he who has been named, it's been etched into his tombstone. <laughs> uh, yes, that's, that's what I found on that. So the thing about Brown and Blair... There were loads of both yeah, of them, yeah. Yeah, so it was all a plot. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh. Uh. <laughs> 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 we shall believe. He got the one... <laughs> <laughs> how he got it. One at a time, as it went. <laughs> I've got a thing on that Franciscan Franciscan monastery yeah. uh, from the beginning, the Greyfriars monastery. Apparently, when they built that, I, um, they went a bit over budget, and uh, it came out so sumptuous that the monks wouldn't move in there. Ungrateful. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was too nice. So what? Because the point of Franciscans is that they're the ones who whack themselves and are like, you know. Yeah. Um, mean to themselves and don't want to, you know, don't want nice things. Um, could have been converted into a boutique hotel or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I think that's exactly what happened. They were early hipsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm not going to sit on a chair. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to find some other people to move in, but there were none. Well, he's getting to the spirit of it now. <laughs> <laughs> now it is time to go. <laughs> <laughs>
the disease. They do, they do. It's, it's infectious. So I, I had given the panel a challenge maybe to look up some of the people who buried in the kirkyard. And I, I had a look around myself today. I was surprised to see that William McGonagall uh, is, is buried there. Now, if, if you don't know him, he's an Irish-born Scottish weaver actor and extremely bad poet. His only apparent understanding of poetry was his belief that it needed to rhyme. <laughs> and so a great example of his poetry was the Tay Bridge disaster. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Alas, I'm very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> and there's more so he finishes I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way at least many sensible men do say had they been supported on each side with buttresses at least many sensible men confesses for the stronger we our houses do build the less chance we have of being killed I mean, it's wonderful poetry, isn't it? Brilliant. Yes. As a, sorry, as, as, as an English teacher as well. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That would. Uh, it's like like year six, year seven. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. So it sounds like this teacher gave me a right, We need a challenge. Can you get the word buttresses in? <laughs> well, I don't think that works. Spent a week. Going, what rhymes with buttresses? It was in the pub on Friday. They were like, right, I bet you can't get something yeah. to write down about buttresses. Also, also, McGonagall. It sounds to me like J.K. Rowling. It was like uh, spent. You know, what, what have you been doing today, honey? I've uh, been writing my novel. When she's actually just been hanging around the graveyard all day. <laughs> <laughs> With a load of teen goth girls. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So apparently McGonagall, on one occasion, his workmates, because he was a weaver, they paid a local theatre owner to allow McGonagall to appear in the title role in a production of Macbeth. And McGonagall was convinced that the actor playing Macduff was jealous of him. So McGonagall refused to die in the final act. Which <laughs> <laughs> is wonderful. What would it be like to have seen that? That's amazing. It is amazing. So you just keep like, like, bouncing the knives back or something? Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's going, come on, we need to go home. I quite like that, that Scotland has chosen to honour that, you know, like our two great poets are Gabby Burns, genuinely good poet, and McGonagall. Like you know, either brilliant or completely crap. That's the two things you, you, that's the two things you can be. All, you know. All of man and womankind can be somewhere in between the two. Yeah. 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 Not surprisingly, the McGonagall family moved several times in search of work. They moved to Edinburgh in 1895. Apparently, he died above what is now the Captain's Bar in Edinburgh's South College Street, penniless in 1902. So, it seems like the poetry wasn't working out for him. Surprisingly. I feel like we could make an example of him around some of the PBH menus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just for the wrong time. I, I think he would do very well on Twitter now. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, you know what I, mean? yeah. I think people would really, would really be on board with that. Do you know what I mean? You'd yeah. be like, my day's going rubbish. Uh, what's old McGonagall written yeah. today? Oh, well, I seem to have been more productive than I thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, nowadays, if you write poems criticising people for not building structures adequately, you can end up headlining Glastonbury. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke about Stormzy for the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the older members of the, of the crowd. 
So if, if you're now thinking of visiting the graveyard, uh, if we've whetted your appetite, here are two reviews on TripAdvisor. So um, Paul C. from Sydney says, Between useless graves for dogs and the stories of Harry Potter and dull-looking gravestones, we could have easily missed this waste of time on our walking tour of Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> and Val Law from Singapore says, There is nothing much to see, it's just a mini graveyard and a brief description about Bobby the dog. But you always find these things at TripAdvisor. It's just like reviews. My favourite thing reviews. about TripAdvisor is looking at the negative ones and kind of going. They like, were the negative ones. Well, those are the negative yeah. ones. Like kind of going, oh, you know, what what do the ne the people who don't like it care about? Oh, I don't care about the same stuff as them at all. You know? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they're just. Um, I mean, don't do this. That's what I've done. I I, I do look at TripAdvisor reviews. I, I look at TripAdvisor reviews of. Of, uh, of Auschwitz. Oh, oh wow! And, so, and some of them are just uh, they shouldn't be written. Just don't write them. There's, there's somebody wrote, uh, a, you know, a profound experience, but you know, not for the disabled. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone say, "Oh, it was a bit of a downer"? I feel like that's something. <laughs> that would say. <laughs> a little sad. They could have. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope no one said it was a gas. Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I can, I'll cut that out. That's the best case scenario is you thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Been waiting this entire comedy career. To get <laughs> Finally. There's probably never going to be another occasion when I'm going to use that. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, anyway. Well, I mean, look at the way Europe's going. Yeah, you know, well, yeah. This time yeah. it might be your political speech. Doing the Germany and Poland tour yeah. would be fun, isn't it? Yes. One of the tombs in the Kirkyard is of Sir George Mackenzie, and he's that's got a lot of associations with ghost stories. And I tried to find it today. I think I located which one it was. It's quite famous for an unfortunate incident. In 2003, there were two boys, aged 15 and 17. And they got into the tomb via a ventilation slot and they reached the lower vaults which contained the coffins. They broke open the coffins and stole a skull. And by the time the police arrived, the boys were using it to play football with. Oh, me. Boys, eh? Boys. <laughs> now, the pair narrowly escaped imprisonment on the charge of violating sepulchres. Come on, who hasn't done that on a Friday night? <laughs> uh, the ventilation slot apparently is now sealed. But uh, yeah, you can sort of imagine the football commentary. I mean, they don't need the ventilation anyway, so. <laughs> no, no, I mean, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, what is that? So you can breathe when you're dead. Yeah. yeah. Mm, a bit like um, half hang it. Half hang it, Maggie. Maggie. Yeah, well, she, yeah she needed it, yeah. Well, we, yeah. Didn't, we used to, um, before we could like, accurately test the people dead, they used to, they used to have, leave bells in coffins. In yes, case, yeah, yes, know, they right? did. Yeah, but I think it'd be like you know, like when you're at work and the office phone goes and you just pretend you don't hear it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not dealing with that. <laughs> Somebody else can deal with that. Unfortunately, that is our time. So please, can you just thank our guests? So we had Matt Jewell, Martina, Dylan Dodds, and Louise Lee. And I'd like to also thank the the Beehive Inn, the Scottish Comedy Festival, and the Edinburgh Festival Fringe for hosting us. Just a final on this day, in the 6th of August, uh, rather more recently, in 1991. So this was about Tim Berners-Lee. So he's credited with having invented the World Wide Web in 89 and written the first web browser in 1990. He was employed at CERN in Switzerland. And it was on the 6th of August, 1991, when basically the internet became publicly available. So uh, well within probably most of our lifetimes here. 
he Berners-Lee was a genius. I mean, he'd been frustrated with the inefficiencies and difficulties, and, and he managed to find a way of connecting them all together. And, and we just take that for granted nowadays. He uh, invented the concept of the hypertext, something you could just click on with a mouse, and that would open up other things for you. Uh, and he suggested at the time it would no doubt work for things like graphics, speech, and video. And we just we take all that for granted now. One very final thing, which I think is just as visionary, but rather more succinct, is an anagram of the World Wide Web is hot, lewd, weird web. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, really it? It? Yes, indeed. So oh, that, that was the golden age of the internet. That was 2005. Yeah. Before, <laughs> it, before it got dark. Well, thanks all for coming along. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you very much. Thank you.